I heard a lot of good, so if you're cold, we have blankets in there under the uh, table. Please grab one of those and make yourself comfortable. <clears throat> Tonight's topic is uh, entitled The Examined Life. In particular, we're going to be talking about mindfulness of mind, so examining the mind. This is the third foundation of mindfulness. It's it's a very vast pasture of exploration, looking at the mind, um, even in the West, in our exploration of Western psychology and the number of defense mechanisms of the mind and the number of traits and behaviors and patterns of the thinking mind and then this whole emerging field of contemplative neuroscience looking at mindfulness, looking at meditative practices and its effect on the structures of the brain Um, so there's quite a lot here to talk about when we're talking about the mind I really like throwing it back to the Buddha's original uh, discourses his teachings and in the Rohitasa Sutta, the Buddha says, it is in this fathom-long body with its perceptions and thoughts that there is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path leading to the cessation of the world. And so this is, he's saying, in this fathom-long body, in this experience here, in this body-mind process, uh, we construct our world. This is the Buddhist thought, is that we make our world Uh, As the poet Mural Rukeyser says, the universe is made of stories, not atoms. So the stories of the mind are shaped through our attitudes, our mental attitudes, our moods, past associations and memories, present interpretations and assumptions, structures, social systems and structures, cultural structures of beliefs, of views, of opinions that we inherit, that we are born into these environments, that shape our world. Emotional messages that have been patterned into our neurobiology for thousands of years to mostly get pleasure, avoid pain, uh, you know, capitalize on opportunities, run away from threats, avoid threats. So our world is constructed through the mind, through our perceptions, our moods, attitudes, through our emotional experiences. And the Buddhist aim of practice is that through active awareness, through mindfulness, this practice we did here tonight, that we can break free from the often unconscious and reactive stories of the mind. That we can start to examine the mind. And we can start to observe the mind without judgment. We can see it, as the Buddha says, immediately and directly. Free from the screen of ideas, views, and assumptions that the, you know, our our worldview has been conditioned in. We can start to, uh, it's a really weird thing. It's in neuroscience, they call it metacognition. We can actually think about thinking. We can observe thinking. We can liberate the mind with the mind. Uh, We can become aware of our thoughts, feelings, and emotions in the present. We can start to observe these things and how they work. Uh, One of Joseph Goldstein's teachers, Manindraji, he said that if you want to understand your mind, sit down and watch it. And this is the Buddha's encouragement that in this fathom-long body lies the world, the origin of the world, the ceasing of the world, and the path that leads to the cessation. And so what does it mean, the cessation of the world? 
basically is that we often habitually, reactively, automatically grab on to the stories and the views of the mind without examining them. And we, you know, in neuroscience they say that whatever you place your attention on gets magnified. So when these stories come to mind, we go out and we, uh, this word manasakara, we make them in our mind. That's this Pali Sanskrit word, manasakara, making in the mind. So whatever you pay attention to, it gets magnified. It gets pulled up. It's like watching a movie on the big screen. It gets pulled up on the screen. I like to make that reference because why do we pay 15 bucks to go see a movie, right? We want to go be entertained. I want to feel the dramatic effect. I, I you know, cry in the sad parts. I'm frightened in the scary parts. I want to be affected in the mind effects. And if we don't examine the mind, what happens is we're affected unconsciously. We're affected without uh, paying attention. We just kind of, I follow my mind around and get lost in, as the Buddha says, in this and that. We get caught up in this and that. Buddha Dasa is quoted as saying, he's uh, one of the first Buddhist scholars... Pages on pages. He says, How does the modern world look at how does the modern world look to a meditation master? Lost in thought. And the Buddha says, Who is your enemy? Mind is your enemy. Who is your friend? Mind is your friend. Learn the ways of the mind, tend the mind with care. So the encouragement, the Buddha's message is to practice Yanaso Manasakar, which means careful attention. To be careful about what we make in the mind and to be full of care with how we tend to the mind. To invite the mind to have a soft place to land, to make a friend of the thoughts that come throughout the day. You know, to get to know the most uh, confusing and dysregulating part of our emotional experiences. The anxieties that we don't want to sit with, the fears, the loneliness, the sadness, to invite those things in with care, to tend to these parts of our experience carefully. So this is important. Careful attention is important for two reasons. One, like I said, whatever we pay attention to, it gets pulled up on the big screen and it affects us. It gets magnified. It colors our view. And through coloring our view, that informs our thoughts. It informs our speech. It informs our behavior. And it's important to practice careful attention because, as the Buddha says, whatever one thinks and frequently ponders upon will become the inclination of the mind. That you form habits through thinking. That the reason why you worry so much is actually because you're good at worrying. Because the mind has gotten good at that skill. And it's a good skill to have. But the problem is, is that when we don't examine the mind, it runs around in these habits. You know, it's untamed. And this is in the, throughout the discourses, the Buddha encourages us to tame the mind, the wild mind. And not in the way in the Western sense that we tame our mind, which is this striving, shut up, I hate <laughs> my thoughts, becoming self-critical and self-judgmental, but actually quite the opposite of inviting or befriending 
the mind and being curious and interested. I like to look at this like how you would treat a little kid. You know, a little kid that uh, doesn't know any better, that's scared or that's lonely or sad or afraid. To develop a relationship to the thinking mind. So the problem, the problem is that without active awareness, as Brene Brown says, she says, the mind doesn't take responsibility for its stories, nor does it try to write new endings to them. So mindfulness helps us to take more responsibility for the stories that the mind creates. And responsibility both means we're more aware and also developing an ability to respond. Another hard part of this this task of mindfulness of developing active awareness is that the stories that the mind tells me throughout the day are very familiar. That these stories are stories of our families. They're stories that have developed before we could even have metacognition, before the prefrontal cortex of our brain even developed, before we could have active awareness. We learned how to view the world through our families and through culture and society. They're stories of ourselves, so we tend to be the subject of most of our thoughts. And... The mind tends to think it's an expert of its own stories, right? It's, it's not really challenging itself very often. It, and these stories are also, another hard part is they're rehearsed, right? So the main problem here is not that we have all of the stories of our mind or that the mind thinks, you could say, but instead it's that these stories we live in are very often habitual, meaning patterned and repetitive. They're very often unconscious, simply meaning unnoticed or lacking awareness. And they're very often automatic, which means they're reactive or impulsive. In behavioral psychology, we talk about if you change how you act, you can influence how you think and feel. And we all know this. So if I do things that I feel are in line with my values, I'll in turn often uh, feel better about myself. Self-esteem is built by doing esteemable acts. So it influences my thoughts and feelings. But the Buddha took a step back and he said, wait a second, how you think is also behavior. So you have to be careful and you want to be watchful about what you spend your time doing up here. How you talk to yourself and how you relate to your mind. Because it's habitual a lot of the times, it's unconscious a lot of the times, and it's automatic. So what I want to talk about is some of these habitual tendencies of the mind. And this is something that I've developed. It's not necessarily in the Buddhist teachings, but I find these four categories that I wrote up here. Uh, to be somewhat helpful in pinpointing where I get stuck. So one of the habits of the thinking mind is to develop this this uh, process, I call it, of magnification. And magnification simply means the habit of mind where the people, places, and things we experience are reduced down to basic characteristics 
and are only narrowly examined. So another way to call magnification is narrow-mindedness. And this is the tendency of our attention to be drawn towards only a small portion of what's actually being experienced. So this, in neuroscience, they call this the negativity bias, where we tend to magnify or hyper-focus on only a small portion of what's actually being experienced. And this happens pretty much all day long. (laughs) Uh, We focus on what we want to focus on. And we tend to focus in neuroscience, what they say, on things that are uncomfortable or things that are potentially going to be not likable at some point in the future or something that may fall through or something that we don't like. Another way to talk about narrow-mindedness is sometimes this manifests as extreme thinking or black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking, or either or, either you're with me or you're against me. So this is again how the mind gets narrow and restricted to only a small portion of what's actually being experienced. And the Buddha encourages this mindfulness as a practice to help us synthesize or integrate extremes. And instead of saying either or, to say both and. And one of my uh, favorite teachers, and against the stream teacher, Matthew Brensilver, he said, for every one thing that you know in your experience to be true, something else is also true. Right? And that's helped me a lot to get out of a mess when I'm really tripping about some shit. And I'm like, hold on. All right, I hate this, and I'm definitely tripping, but something else is true here. You know, and this helps, helps us to turn the mind, to turn the mind in a direction that helps to break out of narrow-mindedness and to widen or open our awareness to more of our direct experience. So this is magnification. A second theme that I've come to recognize is the theme of fixation, which is similar, although, and all of these overlap, by the way, they're not distinct, but fixation has more of a quality. It's the habit of mind where we react to people, places, and things based upon past experiences and from old information. So it's where you fix a person, place, or thing in a time and place based upon a past experience. So the mind has us reacting often to our present experiences from our past associations and memory. This is the nature of something like a resentment. What is a resentment actually? If you look at it as a process, what's happening is you're here in the present. You have a thought about someone, something, or some event, situation in the past. That thought comes packaged with anger, hatred, ill will, aversion, all the flavors, re-emerging anger. The word uh, resentment, I don't speak French, but I believe it comes from the French word reason terre, which means to refeel. So your thoughts come packaged with emotion. When you experience things, you're often not experiencing them for the first time. And it's not a problem. We need past associations. They have something in psychology called procedural memory, which is when you get in your car, you know how to drive a car because you've learned that. <laughs> But the problem is, is you have procedural memory for people, places, and things. So when you see the same person, you know how to do, you know how that interaction is going to go. You kind of have this like biased way of operating or mode of operating. And that's not so helpful when they come, when it comes down to things like human beings, right? When it comes down to 
How do I engage with or interact with this person that I had a really difficult conversation with five years ago? Do I believe that it's possible that they may have changed or that there's more to this person than the argument I had five years ago? And this is where practices of forgiveness and, you know, these heart practices that some of y'all have sat and, uh, you know, worked to develop really help us to break free from this fixation, this sense of being fixed upon past experiences and associations. And the third uh, is rumination. Rumination is the habit of mind to compulsively focus our attention on the symptoms of our distress and on its possible causes and consequences as opposed to its solutions. This is, seems like the most counterproductive way to use the thinking mind, but I just seem to find myself constantly looking at the causes and conditions of all my distress over and over and over and over again. It's like, well, yeah, when you say it that way, it makes sense. I, why would I want to do that? Rumination, again, it's a habit of mind. It's a, it's a survival strategy of the thinking mind to incessantly worry, to look at the causes and conditions of our distress. The, the way that I say this uh, when I teach about rumination is that basically fear and worry, once in the mind, generate and create more fear and worry. Those, what the, that's what those programs do. That's what they're good at. So fear and worry... They're good at two things, making more fear and worry. Right, so things like turning the mind towards practices of faith or practices of a self-soothing, of reassurance. Even if you're not safe encouraging the mind because fear and worry may not be the most useful strategy. Even if you don't have faith, this is the thing, you know, is a lot of people enter Buddhist practice because they're atheists and they like the idea that they you don't have to have a central dogma or a central figure to follow or to worship. You know, salvation is dependent upon one's own actions and the kind of the Buddhist map. But faith is very useful. You know, you, the utility of when, one, when one's having fear or worry on repeat in the mind to be able to say, hey, you know, I trust in the protection of the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. I tr- trust in the protection of my wise association, my friends, the protection of anything that's wholesome or skillful. To turn the mind towards that is useful. And this is a, a, a helpful thing. And also rumination, another way I think about this is if you think of something that's ruminating, it's like speed. It's picking up speed. It's cyclical. Mindfulness is a practice of slowing down the speed of the nervous system. Even just for a moment, taking a breath. Okay, where am I? All right, my feet are here. I'm in this room. All right, I'm not in that conversation that I have to have tomorrow. I'm not in the performance that I have to do tomorrow. I'm here. Take a breath. Relax. It's slowing down that speed. And the fourth habit of mind uh, that I'm familiar with is proliferation, which is a fancy word in Pali Sanskrit. The word is papancha, which I actually like a lot better than proliferation. Papancha means to spread out. So it's the habit of mind that gathers evidence for or builds a theme 
around the symptoms of your distress. And one of the examples I give this is it's like having a team of lawyers for every emotion that you experience. (laughs) So like I said before, fear and worry is good because it's learned how to do fear and worry. Anger is good because it's learned how to do those. But those things also build a case. They gather evidence for themselves. So not only do they continue to perpetuate their own emotional dysregulation, because what an emotion is trying to do is two things. An emotion is defined as felt sensations that result from perceived opportunities or threats in the environment. So an emotion is trying to move you towards things that you perceive as an opportunity, exciting, joyful, pleasurable, comfortable, and away from things that you perceive as a threat, uncomfortable, unpleasant, unsatisfying. So emotions will build a case towards those ends. Mindfulness activates the executive function of your brain. It keeps you regulated. It keeps you online. It says, hold on a second. I feel my emotion. I'm not going to suppress it. I welcome my emotion. All right, that's here. And how do I want to work with this emotion? Do I want to build evidence and let it flip the rational part of the brain so I act it out? Or do I want to actually identify the emotion, understand what's needed, and work to resolve it, work to regulate it? So one of the ways proliferation works, this building of evidence for emotions, is I always give this example. It's like driving down uh, the road and you see a black Honda Accord driving the opposite way in traffic and you catch just a glimpse for a moment of their rear view mirror and they have these dice hanging from their mirror and in that moment you think of your ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend or ex-partner because they drove a black car that was very similar so you just mind makes that association right away and you're now thinking of them and then you're starting to feel a little bit lonely and you're starting to you know think about how you miss them, and you know it ended badly twice, three times, but you start to think a little bit more, and then you start to think about how they cheated on you, and now you're feeling jealous, and now you're feeling resentful, and your, your kind of emotion, if, uh, if unattended to, the mind will just build a case for that shit. It'll say, all right, you feel lonely. All right, what do we do with loneliness? Let's build a case. Let's, let's tell you all the reasons why your loneliness is accurate and true. And, right? Because that, that will get you to act to try to resolve the loneliness. But the problem is, is acting out these emotions often don't resolve them. Sometimes they do, but not all the time. So mindfulness says, hold on a second. There's a really good quote. Um, this is what happens when I write six pages of notes. I don't know where to find anything. That there's a really good quote that's often read in amongst just people that facilitate mindfulness, and it's by Viktor Frankl. And he said, between uh, stimulus and response, there's a space, and in that space lies your power to choose, and in your choice lies your freedom. So mindfulness is about giving us a little bit more space. It's about giving us a little bit more clarity of mind, a little bit more awareness, a little bit more tolerance and acceptance of our emotions so we can respond to them rather than react from them. We can respond to them rather than magnifying or narrowing in on a a part of our experience or fixating on a past experience or uh, ruminating endlessly about all the coulda, shoulda, wouldas or Uh, proliferating and building a case for them, we can actually develop a space in which we can observe and hold them and respond. 
This is mindfulness of the mind, examining our states of mind. So in the way that the Buddha taught mindfulness, is comes from this word satipatthana, which means to remember the ground. And the ground are, you know, very simply, the ground is right here. So we often lose our sense on the here and now because we get pulled into all of the stories and views and opinions of the mind. So mindfulness is taught in practicing bringing to mind certain aspects of your present experience. In the West, we could just say thoughts, feelings, emotions, thoughts, sensations, emotions. So mindfulness could be defined as the ability to objectively monitor thoughts, emotions, and sensations within the frame of present awareness. So with the practice, the Buddha encouraged us as a foundation of mindfulness is to actually observe our our states of mind. This is called mindfulness of mind states or mindfulness of attitude, mental state, or the quality of your mind. Um, I want to talk about this because this is a big shift from what we ordinarily do. With looking at the mind, you have two things that you can look at. You can look at the content of your thoughts. Meaning you can look at the story itself. What is the mind story? What is the mind telling you? What is it believing? What is it signing you up for? What's the content? You can also look at the process of the mind. Meaning noting the quality of the attitude of or the state of the mind. Is the mind dull? Is the mind tired? Is the mind uh, easeful? Is the mind agitated? Is the mind restless? So one way to look at this is like content and uh, quality of the awareness are different. It's like looking at a fishbowl. And you look in the fishbowl and the fish swimming around, that's the content. Those are your thoughts. And the temperature of the water and the consistency and clarity of the water, the environment that the fish is swimming in, in is the attitude or the mental state or quality. Most of the time you know your mental state by the content of your thought. So if you're preparing an argument that you're going to have tomorrow, you could name that mental state agitated. You could name that mental state angry, resentful. Uh, It doesn't matter in emotion regulation. A guy named Paul Ekman teaches these four things that we have to do to help us to work with our attitudes and emotions and moods of mind. And he says you have to identify your emotion, mood, and attitude. You have to be able to access the, the actual physical experience of it, to sit with it. And then you understand or you come to observe or recognize what that emotion is like. And once you have that understanding, you can better manage it. So when you're identifying a mental state, it doesn't matter if you know what state it is, if you get it right. It's just that you're putting a note in that this is how my mind is right now so you can recognize it with more frequency. It's kind of like putting a little name tag, like if you ever go to an orientation, you put a little name tag, angry mind. Uh, 
you know, greedy mind, uh, delusional mind, uh, agitated mind, restless mind, contracted mind, frustrated mind. Whatever label you want is fine. You're just kind of noting these things so when you see them again, you recognize, oh, that's what that is. So this is can sound complicated, but I'm going to break it down a little bit. And I am going to read the original sutta or discourse on how to practice mindfulness of mind. I changed many of the words. So this is what the Buddha says. In practicing mindfulness of one's own mind, one knows a lustful, greedy, obsessive, or infatuated mind to be lustful, greedy, obsessive, obsessive or infatuated and a mind without lust greed obsession or infatuation to be without lust greed obsession or infatuation one knows an aversive resentful agitated or ill will filled mind to be a mind of aversion resentment agitation or ill will and a mind without aversion resentment agitation or ill will to be without aversion resentment agitation or ill will One knows a deluded mind to be deluded, confused, or bewildered, and a mind without delusion to be without delusion, confusion, or bewilderment. One also knows the presence or absence of a contracted, sleepy, or dull mind, and one knows the presence or absence of a distracted, restless, or worry-filled mind. So the Buddha is encouraging us to look at the quality of the mind And to just simply note the presence or absence of a mind state. And what is very important here is developing this objective vantage point of mindfulness. Meaning being able to look at the mind without judgment. Being able to look at the mind simply as another thing to become aware of or interested in. Simply noting the presence or the absence of a mind state without suppression or entanglement. One of the things that really hits me with the Buddha's encouragement is that he's asking us to also notice the absence of mind states. And this is really important to break out of the narrow-mindedness that I talked about earlier is this sense of I was angry earlier and now my mind is free of anger. My mind was full of fear earlier and now I'm experiencing a mind absent of fear. Because of the negativity bias, we will mostly notice what is unpleasant. You rarely have the conscious thought, I'm really not fucking angry right now, right? (laughs) You rarely notice states of mind that you're not. But the Buddha is encouraging us to keep track and to notice for a very important reason. Because we want to encourage states of mind that support us. It doesn't mean we want to suppress anger or suppress fear But we want to work to resource around those types of mind states to encourage them to come and go, to encourage something to replace them, and to maintain and support a mind state that is helpful. And so the first goal of this practice of mindfulness of mind is to develop something called introspective awareness. And so I'm going to read this and maybe it will help to clarify some of this stuff. Introspective awareness is the type of awareness that has the ability to look into your own mind and see if there are any unskillful qualities that have taken root in the mind. We ask ourselves the question, is there fear, anger, judgment, self-hatred, or doubt in my mind right now? 
This application of mindfulness is in contrast to our more usual tendency to obsessively look for the external cause of the fear, anger, judgment, or self-hatred. When unskillful qualities have taken root in the mind, we usually react to these afflictive attitudes of mind by ruminating and obsessing over identifying their cause rather than acknowledging that they are, in fact, simply a passing attitude or mental state. Because introspective awareness requires us to directly observe the mind's passing attitudes, it is probably one of the more difficult applications of mindfulness to employ. So this is challenging. This is incredibly against the stream. It is incredibly hard to say anger is in my mind instead of looking at the cause of the anger. You see how there's a shift there? There's a shift of instead of looking at the external cause for our mind state, we're taking responsibility and saying, this is present, it's here, it's in the mind, it's taken root. This requires what a Buddhist scholar named Analayo refers to as a non-interfering quality of awareness. This means the ability to witness your own shortcomings without, uh, with patience, with receptivity with openness, to be able to watch the mind's dissonance, to watch the mind's distress. He says, a non-interfering quality of mindfulness is required to enable one to clearly observe the building up of reactions and their underlying motives. As soon as one becomes in any way involved in a reaction of the mind, the detached observational vantage point of mindfulness is immediately lost. The detached receptivity of mindfulness enables one to step back from the situation at hand and thereby become an unbiased observer of one's own subjective involvement in the entire situation. Maintaining the presence of mindfulness in this way is closely related to the ability to tolerate a high degree of cognitive dissonance, since witnessing of one's own shortcomings ordinarily leads to unconscious attempts at reducing the resulting feeling of discomfort by avoiding or even altering the perceived information. This is such a different way of engaging with the mind. He says, witnessing one's own shortcomings ordinarily leads to unconscious attempts to reduce the feeling of discomfort of the mind state by either avoiding or altering the perceived information. How can I know an angry mind is just an angry mind? That the agitated mind is just an agitated mind. It's not personal. I don't have to get involved in the content of all of its stories. I will, and I will time and time again act the emotion out or look for the cause of it. But mindfulness helps us to practice this non-interfering quality of recognition. And he says this receptive quality of mindfulness. Mindfulness receives whatever it's becoming aware of. It's not interested at first in changing or fixing or controlling it. It's just interested simply in sitting with and bearing with the experience. So the first practice of mindfulness of mind is to develop this observation of a presence or absence of mind states, to simply notice, to be receptive, and to invite that emotional experience in. And then the second practice is to develop resourcing skills. So how do I, once I notice or note that anger is in the mind, what do I do to work with anger? 
Once I notice or know that a mind is filled with joy, what do I do to experience or to sustain and support a state of mind that's joyful? What leads to joy? What leads to anger? The Buddha is not interested in being moralistic about mind states, good and bad, right and wrong. Joseph Goldstein says, although discerning what is skillful mind state and unskillful is basic to the Buddhist teaching, in our Western culture, it's a very delicate process. For many people, it's an easy step from recognizing a particular state of mind like greed or hatred as being unwholesome to the feeling that you're a bad person for having it or that somehow it's wrong for the mind state to even be there. This pattern of reaction simply leads to more self-judgment, more aversion, and more suffering. It's not a helpful cycle. So what leads to joy? What leads to fear? What are the causes and conditions that create and support these things? So we want to encourage the mind, to gladden the mind, to create a more easeful, gentle, kind, friendly, compassionate, appreciative mind. But we want to get away from this judging or feeling bad or identifying with the state of mind to the point where I'm a bad person for having it, as he says. How do we resource? This is a practice of mindfulness where we want to use the attention to protect from unskillful states of mind that may manifest. So this is, again, how do we protect from letting in anger, hatred, resentment, ill will, greed, delusion. We have to look first at our behavior, the Buddha said. If you want to, you know, if you want to change, like behavioral psychologists say, how you think and feel, you first have to change the environment in which you act. So one of the best ways to encourage skillful and helpful mind states is to live and act in a way that supports those things. And the Buddha is interested, again, as a scientist, mostly in cause and effect. So if you spend your time around people that are supportive, people that uh, you know, encourage you, if you spend your time abstaining from intentionally causing harm to others and refraining from taking things that aren't freely offered to you or engaging in sexual misconduct or misconduct's a strong word, uh, you know, whatever, sexual ways of interacting that cause harm. Uh, if you keep an eye on your consumption and what you take into your body, these things, these protective force of sila, of the ethical trainings of the Buddha, help us to protect the mind from unwholesome, unskillful mind states from arising in the first place. So what we have to do is we have to look at our behaviors. We have to look at the environments and in which we live and interact. We also need to be resourced in how to abandon unskillful states that have already arisen. How do we let go of anger when it's in the mind? And how do we encourage skillful states to manifest? And how do we support states that have already manifested that are uh, skillful? So if you've been coming for a time, this is uh, the practice of wise effort. How do I bring effort into cultivating and developing quality mind, qualities of mind that are wholesome? 
So I want to point out before I wrap up this dialectic or this kind of like balance of these two seemingly opposite things where on one hand you're supposed to sit with mind states without reacting, not suppressing, not pushing away. But on the other hand, you're supposed to encourage and practice inclining the mind into skillful states. So we have to do both to practice non-reactivity, to practice a clarity of vision, of seeing in the mind this introspective awareness. Right now it's like this in the mind. To allow ourselves to access and to understand that emotional state. And we also have to practice inclining our way out of it. I see this all the time in people I interact with. And this is a big part of dialectical behavioral therapy. Something that I practice is acceptance and change. How do I both accept something and also change something? How do I both validate my emotion and say that's okay and also say, okay, and where's the solution? And how do I find a way to regulate or you know, encourage the emotion um, with something that's skillful, that's going to be helpful and useful? So... One way that I talk about practicing this is using these three questions of what is it, how is it, and what does it need? I know this is a lot of like contextual stuff, but what is it, what is it that's in the mind? Name it, identify it as anything that you want. It doesn't have to be accurate. Pay attention to the mind. See what it's up to and start to become familiar with what it gets up to and start to say, okay, what is this in the mind right now? And then the second question is how is it? Meaning, does it feel skill? Does it feel the effect of that? Is it helpful? Is it useful? How is the effect of it? Can I hold it? Can I relax around it? Can I let it in? So, what is it? How is it? What is the effect of that? And then, what does it need? What's the encouragement? Does it need to be prevented? Does it need to be abandoned? Does it need to be encouraged? In a different direction? Does it need to be uh, supported because it's wholesome, joy, ease? I'll share the past two days, my own, it's funny giving these talks sometimes how uh, relevant they are. I guess mindfulness in mind is always pretty relevant, but how much anger and resentment I've had in my mind the last two days and negativity. And just watching, and there's almost this point of like, skillfulness around it of like, okay, I can tolerate you anger. I can let you and I'm going to listen to you. But like enough, it's time to stop and it's time to do something else and to t- take your attention sometimes and to really like strongly and firmly encourage it to pay attention to something else. And then other times, we have to be really, really patient with our mind states. Because the more that we try to encourage, the more that they say, hey, you haven't listened to me long enough. I still have something that I need that you haven't discovered. You don't, you know, you haven't listened. So taking time to listen to our emotions. All right, I'm going to read this poem to close. It's by uh, Portia Nelson. And uh, she says, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. 
I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes me a long time to get out. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it. It is, it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately this time. We'll walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. I walk down another street. So these are some of my reflections on mindfulness of mind, bringing uh, this practice to include the mind. And uh, what we always like to do is just encourage some discussion and conversation around this topic or anything that came up for you. So it's a free form. Anyone can share. You don't have to be an expert of anything other than your own experience. Um, Thank you.